0: Welcome to this uh, public conversation on peace in an age of terror. Um, I'm Luke Powery, the Dean of of Duke Chapel. And I'm delighted to be in such good company with all of you and with my esteemed colleagues from across the university who are on this panel. And and I'll introduce them very shortly. Uh, Today's discussion is a part of what we call the chapel's bridge panel series, and which seeks to connect people from disparate walks of life around a common concern in order to discover shared pathways toward the beloved community of God. So for this particular bridge panel, uh, with politics so much in the air, um, and I can guarantee that none of of these panelists are running for president, (laughs) Um, I thought it would be, and <laughs> you're running. All right. You have you. Yeah. Um, so this will be a great panel already. I know that it will be. Um, but I thought it would be an opportune time, actually, to talk about how political ends can be pursued through nonviolent means. Um, that is in contrast to using violence to further political aims which is a definition of terrorism. Um, And if others are choosing violence and intimidation, how does one personally persevere in seeking peace? That is, if that is your goal. I preached on this subject um, about a year or so ago in December 2015, Peace in an Age of Terror. Um, And just in case if you haven't memorized my sermons from a year ago, I wanna share one excerpt to set things up. It's a fragile moment in history. It's an anxious and fearful moment. It looks like hope unborn will die again. And there's nothing more tragic than a miscarriage of hope. The Apostle Paul's words from his letter to the Philippians resonate with our day. Do not worry about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Many are anxious because in reality, We are in a milieu of melancholy and misery and madness or in colloquial terms, one hot mess propelled by the media machine for high ratings. Politicians and presidential candidates and presidents of Christian universities fanning the flames of fear and division and hatred and xenophobia and Islamophobia. This is anything but a time of peace. And so in that sermon, I went on to speak about how the peace of God guards our hearts and minds. But today, I want to hear some other perspectives about how to pursue peace in an age of terror. to do that, we are blessed to have these three wise, faithful members of the Duke community. First, closest to me is Dr. Valerie Cooper, who is an Associate Professor of Black Church Studies at the Duke Divinity School. Using historical and theological methodologies, Dr. Cooper's wide-ranging scholarship examines issues of religion, race, politics, and popular culture. Her book, Word Like Fire, Maria Stewart, The Bible and the Rights of African-Americans, analyzes the role of biblical hermeneutics in the thought of Maria Stewart, a pioneering 19th century African-American theologian and political speaker. She's also currently working on a book Um, about racial reconciliation. Next to her is Dr. Stanley Harwas, who is the Gilbert T. Rowe Professor Emeritus of Divinity and Law here at Duke. You may know him as a favorite Duke professor for many years, or even as America's best theologian, according to Time Magazine in 2001. In his celebrated career as a theologian, Dr. Harwas has sought to recover the significance of the virtues for understanding the nature of the Christian life. This search has led him to emphasize the importance of the church, as well as narrative for understanding Christian existence. He's a prolific author, as many of you know. His book, A Community of Character Toward a Constructive Christian Social Ethic, was selected as one of the 100 most important books on religion of the 20th century. And he recently authored The Work of Theology by Erdman's Press in 2015. Next to him, we have Dr. Omid Safi, who is the current director of Duke's Islamic Studies Center and a professor of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies and also a Duke alumnus. In fact, Dr. Safi is such a dukey that he got married right here in Duke Chapel. As a scholar, Dr. Safi is the author or editor of a number of books, including Voices of American Muslims, Memories of Muhammad, Why the Prophet Matters, and The Politics of Knowledge in Premodern Islam. Would you welcome our panelists today? Let me just explain briefly how this will work. I have a couple of questions for the panelists, but as we are talking, I invite you, the audience, to write a question on the note cards provided. Hopefully, each of you has a note card. If you don't have a note card or pen, just raise your hand and Andy Ray will help you out. Oh, okay, Andy's right next to you. and. And so, we're going to provide some time for questions from the audience uh, to the panel uh, near, the, near the end of our time. So, let's just jump right in. Um, the, the, the first question I'd like to pose to all of you, and then we will see where this goes. <laughs> um, because I don't assume that we all have the same understanding of what we mean by peace and even the word terror. Um, So I'd like to begin, and anyone can start, is how do you define peace, and how do you define terror?
1: Well, I'll begin by saying that I don't define. Hmm. Definitions tend to be too essentialistic. I think that you can describe certain kinds of violence uh, through exemplification and then analogically you discover how violence that you identified that you were pretty sure about has implications for how you discover violences that you hadn't really known about. Um, I always think starting with killing someone's not a bad place to start in terms of what violence is mm. and that that has to do with war, of course. And then I think that one of the great challenges today is to know what war is. Some of the most fateful words that were uttered was George Bush's statement the day after September the 11th that we were at war. We gave Bin Laden everything he wanted, namely after that he wasn't a murderer, he was a warrior. So, one of the most important things about peace is getting your language right. And that's not easily done because the descriptions that are out there um, confuse our ability to locate what peace might look like. I think peace is a panel like this. Mm-hmm. We're not ready to kill one another. <laughs> so, yeah, we, yeah. so we, so we have, right? So we have to argue. Mm-hmm. Argument is a very good thing to have. Con- I mean, peace is not the absence of conflict.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Good communities are. Conflictual, in the hopes that they can have the kinds of arguments necessary to come to common agreements, short of killing one another, and that's a great achievement.
2: Can I pick up there? Sure. Um, so I would say that uh, I would agree with you that peace is not just the absence of terror, but also the presence of justice. And I think that the point that you made—that it is possible to think differently about both peace and terror depending on your, your subjectivity, your social location. Um, so I was thinking very um, politically in this campaign season about what peace is, and my definition would be life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Uh, domestic tranquility. Uh, Not a definition, but a description, Um, and free and just access to the means of survival. That is, I'm acknowledging that to prevent people from having what they need to thrive and to flourish is also a kind of violence, is also a kind of terror. Um, Locking people into places where they will be subjected to um, hatred or horror, ghettoizing people, is a kind of violence. I think that too often we only notice certain violences, but not other violences. Um, for example, America has a, a, a very long and hard history of domestic terrorism. And ultimately, I mean, I was looking at an article that recently. Um, white supremacists have done far more damage than so-called Islamic terrorists in America. Uh, the Emmett Till Memorial was shot up recently. Um, they recently found what they think is Nat Turner's skull because Americans kept souvenirs of lynchings, um, including pieces of human beings. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about seeing, uh, passing an apothecary a, a, a drugstore in Atlanta and seeing pieces of Sam Hose on display there. Hose had just been lynched in Atlanta. Um, and it interrupted his academic work. How could he talk about uh, the Atlanta Negro, which was the project he was working on, if the Atlanta Negro was on display in a drugstore, and so I, I, want to, I want us to expand our ideas about what, what terror is and to think about so that I want to contextualize terror as part of what, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement is responding to, part of what the civil rights movement was responding to. Um, so i 'll leave it there. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, So, I think if we are going to start with a notion that a genuine peace is something that is much more than merely the absence of conflict, um, but that it actually requires the presence of justice, that there can be a kind of false peace, which is accomplished through heavy-handed establishment of one certain presidential candidate's favorite two words, law and order, right? A strategy that we have heard going back to the 60s and 70s. That is not real peace. That is not a peace that is rooted in the presence of the source of peace, being the almighty. But if we're also going to talk about peace and justice, I think there's another word that I want to introduce into that discussion, and a word that, like peace, we are likely to misunderstand and abuse these days, and that's the word love. Love is a word that nowadays we tend to want to relegate it and exile it to a purely privatized realm, and of all the different rainbow shades of love, We tend to want to restrict it to a rather romantic sense, maybe even a sexual sense between a man and a woman. But I want to take that love in that most robust sense of the unleashing of God onto this realm and to have a real peace, a lasting peace, a meaningful peace be a society which is based on love as a social ethic where nonviolence is the only possible conclusion if you love another person. If you love somebody you do not inflict violence upon them nor do you stand by silently when you notice that violence is being inflicted on people. Whether that violence comes in the forms of bombs and drones and guns or whether that violence comes psychologically through an assault not only on their bodies but on the dignity of their bones. And since we are also asked not just about peace but also about terror, and as the Muslim person on this panel, I suppose it's my cosmic duty to say something about terror as well, Let me say not something about what terror means to me, but rather what terror seems to say in this particular moment, how we are using that particular word. Last month, there was yet another daily occasion of a mass shooting, right? We have now created an America in which mass shootings are a daily reality. And last month, there was a mass shooting in South Carolina And the sheriff went on TV and said, there is no reason to suspect this as an act of terror. The person who perpetuated the crime and all of the victims are white. Therefore, this could not have been an act of terror. Being a Duke? an institution which is not absent of its own forms of terror, historic and present. People like us are oftentimes accused of racializing and politicizing situations. I think instead what we would say is that we live in a world where lines of race, class, national privilege, sexual orientation, physical ability, gender, and religion, shape the reality of our lives. And in today's world, far too often, we evaluate this powerful word terror, which can be used to justify and legitimize almost anything, not on the basis of the action itself, but rather by the skin color and the professed faith of the person committing the action. And that is simply not
1: good enough. I really like your bringing up love. Um, Iris Murdoch always had the view that love is a nonviolent apprehension of the other as other, and usually when we say I love you, we mean you fit nicely into my ego desires uh, which um, uh, which uh, is a kind of violence in itself, and indeed. One of the, one of the places that I would think would be ripe um, uh, for investigations of violence is the behavior between male and female undergraduates in terms of dating. Emerson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, "I love you" can be an extraordinarily manipulative claim. Uh, when basically what it means is I want to use you for my own interest.
0: So if love can be, um, as we're hearing from these multivocal perspectives, a form of terror in a way, even as we think about relationality, um, can peace also be a form of Absolutely. terror?
2: Well, see, but is that real love when you're manipulating? No. Okay. No. <clears throat> not, and nor real peace, right? I mean, it's a very idealistic view to think that, that we might, As you, when you were speaking on it, I was thinking um, love as a governing principle, um, not tolerance. I mean, it seems to be the most we can ask of one another is to tolerate, to put up with one another. I mean, I think it's a lovely picture um, Is it hopelessly idealistic?
3: You know, being named Omid, a word that in many languages means hope, uh, I couldn't be me and not be hopeful. (laughs) Um, I think there's a reason why when Reverend Barber was preaching here about being prisoners of hope, that moved the hearts of not only the Christians in the audience, but also this Muslim boy. Um, and, and, And I will say that for us, we should stop defending ourselves against the charge of being idealistic. What does it mean to be human if not to have ideals that we aspire to? The question is, do we have a method? And is our method consistent with our ideals at, at some point? And as far as this you know, idea of tolerance, I mean, this is something that I've pointed out before, and I think we got to keep pointing it out. we got to do better. We gotta do better than an ethic, whether at a university, a city of Durham, North Carolina, United States, or the world community, of simply tolerating each other. If you go back and get the Oxford Unabridged Dictionary and you look up the word tolerance, it comes from medieval toxicology. It has to do with how much foreign poisonous substance can a body tolerate before it kills you. Mm. And if our notion of what does it mean to be human community is dependent on how many Muslims, Hispanic, gays, blacks, Jews, immigrants, poor people can I put up with before it kills me, (laughs) then maybe there is still a more noble and beautiful notion of a more perfect union that I think we can strive towards
1: tolerance is so much the uh, stance of the powerful.
2: Absolutely. Yes.
1: And so, so you, so who wants to be tolerated? Um, and what is the alternative to tolerance? Humility. And, and where does humility find its um, basis? And I take Islam's understanding of submission to be ongoing reflection about that, mm. where we, we Christians, of course, have the cross as the humiliation of our God through victory, and, but uh, we want to turn that into a sword too often.
0: Mm. I mean, thinking about Islam and Christianity, um, what could you all say some more about what resources Religious, theological, spiritual—do um, you draw on from your various perspectives and traditions uh, toward seeking peace? I mean, where, where is this grounded for you? Even so thinking about this,
2: it seems to me that we've crossed from definitions or descriptions of peace to actually the work of peacemaking, mm-hmm. right? And it seems to me that in the work that I do, there are different models of, essentially, reconciliation is is the very hot, sort of sexy term that a lot of people are using. There are two, sexy, no? <laughs> okay. Not really. uh, got a really visceral reaction oh, yeah. on that one. That <laughs> okay. um, there are two models of reconciliation. One is sort of a forgive and forget, kind of can't we all just get along? Um, and the other, I think, is real peacemaking that requires uh, the precursor of justice making. Um, I de- the idea that uh, you are not only someone is repenting, but someone is taking up his or her cross. Um, the idea that the first shall be last and the last first. So um, the idea that I looked at was um, Jesus and Zacchaeus in Luke 19, one through 10 where there's this short tax collector up in the tree. I love that story because it's the short guy. And um, he gets noticed by Jesus and he's invited to lunch. And and um, as part of his relationship with Jesus, he realizes he needs to correct his relationship with the people that he's cheated because he was a tax collector. And so he's not only repenting, but he is also making restitution, right? Um, if you go to the altar and you realize that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, go get right with your brother. And so I think that there's a more difficult, more gritty, but more um, theologically authentic idea about peacemaking. That's reconciliation that's going to cost us something, right? And we, I think Americans, we love talking about reconciliation and we love thinking about reconciliation and we love imagining it and we'll have diversity panels and our panels will be diverse. But, I mean, in terms of doing this real work that requires some people to give up some of their privilege and some people to take up some of that privilege, and for some of the first to be last, and for some of that um, which has been stolen to be returned, um, is going to require really a radical rethinking um, and reappropriation. And I'm not sure that we're ready to go there, but I think if we're not, if we never get to that point, we will will have difficulty maintaining this as a civil and civic space. Um, I think that our democracy is really going to require, continues to require um, increasing amounts of justice. And that's not really a conversation we're actually having yet, um, except for a few places like this.
3: Forgiveness, I think, is divine. It is one of those divine qualities that I think each of us uh, is struggling and failing every single day to embody in our own lives, and our own relationships. Forgiveness also is rooted in a kind of power. It's relational, but oftentimes there's a person with a certain level of power and privilege who extends themselves uh, to forgive Forgive the other. Mercy and forgiveness do not put the two powers at an eye-to-eye level, though we come to that level. I think one of the points that I have been thinking about is the need to balance two things simultaneously. On one hand, we want to strive for relationships, personal relationships that are based on reconciliation, love, mercy, forgiveness. And then at the same time, we also want to do that difficult thing, which is to keep our eyes on institutions, on structures, on systems, because that's where structural and systematic violence and injustice continues to be produced, and continues to be produced faster than we can forgive it individually and personally. One of the limitations of getting nice, good-hearted folks together is that we try to maximize the amount of personal goodwill and reconciliation that we do without doing the mobilizing and organizing to stop the structural and systematic violence, whether that's being done racially, socioeconomically, or from one nation to the other. And I think we've got to do both we've got to have those two components working hand in hand, which is why this work is moral work. It is religious work. It's also civic, political, and economic work, and to divorce them is catastrophic.
1: For me, as a, someone committed to Christian nonviolence, commitment draws on God's refusal to save us through violence, but through the acceptance of our violence, God refuses to pass it on in order to do good. So it is Christologically necessary, I think, for Christians to be nonviolent. But of course, most people then say, all of Christian tradition doesn't agree with you, since Christians can't <laughs> be more happy when they're killing someone. Um, I say that before I die, my, I have a modest, a modest ambition. I want to convince the Christians of America that war is problematic. I mean, it's not. A, it's, I mean, you know, it's not a big deal, but it's right, uh, right. <laughs> beca- because. My way of putting it is, Christians are not nonviolent because we believe nonviolence is a strategy to rid the world of war. But in a world of war, as faithful followers of Christ, we cannot imagine being anything other than nonviolent. And that may make the world more violent because the world does not want the peace, the the violence it calls peace exposed for the violence it is. And that lets you know that you're in a hard struggle. Mm-hmm. And Christians um, presumption that if we just control the means of violence for a little while, we can force everyone into nonviolence betrays how God would save the world through the patience of the cross. And um, that's not a word that um, is widely shared among Christians today.
2: But let's be honest. I mean, Christianity today is in real trouble, right? Um, The work that I'm doing is about the ways that Christian churches are, are racially segregated. Uh, by definition, hypersegregated, that is, more segregated than the neighborhoods they're located in, right? Um, Yes, uh, this past weekend, there was the Conference of Faith and History at Regent University, at uh, Pat Robertson's University, and uh, Donald Trump made a surprise visit. Uh, I've been watching, uh, over the course of this election, um, the spectacle of particularly evangelical Christians, whatever that word means. agreeing or disagreeing over Donald Trump and um, and particularly over issues of violence, whether or not um, sexual violence against women is okay in a candidate. Uh, sexual assault is okay, whether or not violence at your rallies is okay, whether or not um, violence against immigrants or uh, violence against the handicapped or whatever, I mean, um, we as Christians don't agree on much of anything violence is just one more category there
1: but Bauer you and I are right okay
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, uh, the um, uh,
2: I've tried convincing folks of that
1: uh, right <laughs> um, I think if you take For example, the challenge of slavery before this country. What do you do when what you've done is so wrong, there's nothing you can do to make it right? Um, uh, And that how the narrative that this is a slave society is to be made part of the story would we be, if 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 we as a people were able to acknowledge the implications of slavery and the genocide against Native Americans, would yeah. we've gone to war in Iraq? Mm. I mean, mm. I mean, where would the righteousness come from? <laughs> it
2: would not even Vietnam. I mean, Martin King. Right. right. right? This is the challenge.
1: Exactly. And
2: we so, we have prophets. We don't necessarily listen to them.
1: So how to integrate those stories um, is at least the, is a beginning to start trying. I, I mean, uh, reconciliation. I always say is letting is finding out your enemy is telling you the truth about yourself. Mm hmm. hmm. <laughs> God, I hate that. <laughs> and um, uh, and uh, how how to um, uh, I mean how to turn that into any reasonable politic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I don't think, I mean, one, you can't even get it said.
2: How do you get people to face that kind of pain, right? I mean, we're, what we're talking about is difficult work. Forgiveness is painful, difficult work. It's, it's, forgiveness is divine, but we're human, right? And so um, it's, it's, it's not just I forgive, but I will forgive. I choose to forgive. I am I, going to live into this forgiveness. I don't feel it yet, but I am choosing to forgive until until the feelings catch up, right? We're talking about very difficult work. How do you get people to do the difficult work? I'm gonna go back to that love
3: idea. If you love somebody, you tell them the truth. If you have a friend and they are in an abusive relationship, you sit down with them and you tell them the truth. If your child is doing something that's destructive, you tell them the truth. And do we love each other enough to tell each other the truth? Do we have preachers and ministers and rabbis and imams who love us enough to tell us the truth? And do we have people who love us enough in the name of God to sit down with us and say, as a nation, we are in a deep state of moral crisis. We are trying to choose between people who are telling us that they are going to make us great again and the other one says, no, no, we're not going to make us great again because we've always been great. Well, a nation that's great doesn't have 20% of its babies living in poverty. That's right. A nation that's great doesn't have 40% of its African American and Hispanic and Native American children living in poverty. And as Michael Franti says in that wonderful line of his, you say you don't be so violent, but you drop bombs on every single continent, right? A nation that's great when greatness is not measured by the size of our military, but by the extent of our generosity and kindness and tenderness, would not have dropped 23,000 bombs on Muslim countries in 2015 alone. We've got to insist on preachers, on truth-tellers, on prophetic voices from all of our traditions who love us enough to tell us the truth about where we are and where we aspire to get to. My, um,
1: I have a question that I try to put forward in that regard. If a war is not just, what is it? If a war is not just, what is it? Why don't we call World War One and World War Two do not fit the just war criteria even closely? What if we just called it World Slaughter One, World Slaughter Two? Mm. The very fact that people use the language of war is, you know, they, you, you take the criteria of just war and say, well, we really. Um, didn't observe non-combatant immunity, we can't do that, but we can have the principle of proportionality more good than evil. Uh, one out of two ain't bad, um, uh, so we can go to war. Um, uh, uh, you know, thats it's too late um, once war has happened. And why do you continue to call it war? War is a justificatory description that says, Even if it doesn't fit just for our criteria, it's still something we have to do. And then the question becomes, who's the we? I always say I represent the Tonto principle of Christian ethics. Tonto and the Lone Ranger, and I understand some of of you here may not know who the Lone Ranger was. Mm -hmm. Tonto and the Lone Ranger were surrounded by 20,000 Dakota uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, and the Lone Ranger looked over to Tonto and said, this looks pretty tough, Tonto. What do you think we ought to do? And he said, what do you mean we, white man? Now, mm. now h- who the we is and how you locate the we, um, it makes a lot of difference for the kind of argument you're going to make. What do you mean we must, we must oppose naked mm. aggression wherever it occurs around the world? I mean,
2: um, how, does, how do you live that?
1: I don't know. Okay. I, I think it, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, mean,
2: I mean, going out of this chapel today, right. what would be your, your first step?
1: To do, to try to be willing to hear the truth from a friend, <laughs> just like you say. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, I mean, the hardest, the greatest challenge to people committed to nonviolence, and God knows what that means in terms of. Is you,
2: The Civil Rights Movement looked like
1: right. there, a- operationalizing that. It was, but you may, as someone committed to nonviolence, have to watch the innocent suffer for your conviction. And that's painful, too. Oh, uh, it's, it's a deep, deep pain mm. that someone else may have to suffer for your conviction because you can't use violence. And But what that does is it makes you imaginative to think about what kind of alternatives there might be and of course that's what martin luther king did martin luther king always insisted that you respected the enemy and and you could call that a form of love that he embodied uh, i mean
2: i think he did oh Absolutely.
1: he did oh he did and it, i mean it it was remarkable that's right remarkable
2: i mean he was receiving pressure from all sides
1: Right. Internally. To That's
2: right. That's
0: right. If I can jump in have two more questions that I want to be sure, and, and that hope will end on a more hopeful note, perhaps. Um, but the first is telling the truth. I mean, what would you say? So answer this truthfully as you have been with the other questions. What are or what is the biggest threat to peace today? I mean, from your perspective, what's, what, what's the biggest threat?
2: I think that we've been afraid to call out evil. Um, I look, so I'm, I'm a political junkie, and I, I um, constantly am looking online and reading, and um, I am horrified by the rise of the alt-right and white supremacist rhetoric as normalized. Um, I am horrified by conversations that suggest that um, gendered violence is just boy talk or locker room talk. Um, I think that I I am horrified when people who call themselves Christians and particularly Christian leaders downplay the violence of those sorts of interventions for political gain or for some other reason. So I think that I'm, I'm I'm concerned, I was reading an article about the, um, the consequences of truth telling on the internet and how trolling has become so violent. And I um, remember that a colleague of mine at the Divinity School received a very specific, very frightening death threat to her Duke Divinity School office because she had said something about Donald Trump and, um, and the Divinity School did not necessarily know how to respond to this kind of violence. So I think that we are not being honest about the threats because they, in some situations, because they don't impact us personally, it's possible to ignore that threat or to think differently about it. Um, we're not telling the truth. We're not being honest about how violent a society we are. Um, and we want to look elsewhere for, for the villains
1: as opposed to in the mirror.
0: Hmm. Stan or, or Omid? Or?
1: Well, I, I think lies are the breeding ground of violence. And uh, getting at truth is not an easy matter. And... Um, How, is this a democracy? Well, I think that's worth a lot of discussion. Uh, It looks like to me money rules. Oligarchy. Mm. Uh, And um, I'm not at all sure. I I ask all my friends, do they know anyone that's voting for Trump? None of my friends know anyone that's voting for Trump. I don't. And who in the hell are those people? (laughs) It reminds you, there must be two Americas. That's right. And, and, um, And we have no contact. No, we have no contact. And that, I mean, that's something we need to tell ourselves and confront. What happened that poor white males have no story that will provide them with a sense of dignity that will stop the violence that is inherent in their self.
2: Except that it's somebody else's fault.
1: somebody else's fault.
2: That's the story that's unifying them. And it's not just poor white
3: men, it's also angry poor white men. An angry, wealthy wealthy white (laughs) man. That's Right. right. And it's an anger that is deliberately manufactured. Um, You know, many of us are old enough to remember when Al Gore invented the Internet. And, um, you know, there was this brief moment of hope that the Internet was going to democratize learning and education. And in some ways, we've seen the opposite. We're now more siloed off than ever. And I'm going to run off to Amy Goodman and Democracy Now! And somebody else is just going to listen to CNN and somebody else to Fox News with little contact aside from you know, flaming each other on Twitter and the YouTube comment section. As far as, very briefly, as far as the what I see as the biggest threat, um, and it's not a particularly sexy or nice word, Empire. Empire for me. The Brits and the French embraced that word Empire like it was a security blanket. They broadcast their pride at being the British Empire and the French Empire we as Americans are more of an empire than they ever were, we don't even know how many military bases we have around the world. There is no official number. It's at least 200, could be as high as 800. And the key point is not just that this is about inflicting violence primarily on brown bodies over there, But it's also because we live in a globalized world, over here and over there are intimately connected. That's right. So now the tear gas that is used in Ferguson is the same tear gas that is used in Gaza. Now the police force from Ferguson, NYPD, LAPD are sent to the Middle East for counterterrorism training. What does it mean that we're training Our police officers to to treat our primarily black and brown and poor inner-city citizens under the rubric of anti-terrorism techniques developed in the Middle East and hundreds of millions of dollars of war-grade machinery to patrol the deserts of Iraq and the mountains of Afghanistan are being recycled and showing up in our inner cities. So more than ever, the chickens are coming home to roost. Yes. And the over there and the over here are bleeding over each other. On a scale of violence and violence against civilians for political purposes, what nation states do, starting with our own, we have professionalized the killing of civilians on a scale a thousand times bigger than what any terrorist organization gets to do. We have killed in the millions in Iraq, in Vietnam, and elsewhere. And it's just way past time, for the sake of God and for the sake of love and justice, to have an open and honest conversation about it.
0: I think all of you have given us a sense, been. Very truthful with the statistics or the realities on the ground, the honesty that's required, um, how would you how can we live more peaceably in this nation or in this in this world or even here at Duke what what are some constructive movements toward that tell us what
2: I think um, one of the most powerful things was the challenge about love and um, how to operationalize that. So um, it is about, I think, reaching out to people. Um, so there's, there's, there's inner peace and then there's peace with one another. Um, and I think ultimately that the resources of my faith encourage me to develop inner peace by keeping short accounts between me and God. That is, you know, in my devotional time, working it out, um, addressing issues as they arise, being honest with God about where I am and how I'm doing. But then also keeping short accounts with one another, right, um, taking the time to to talk to people, to, um, to have lunch, to um, to worship together. Uh, the, the challenges in in our very, very busy lives and schedules, the difficulties of, of taking that time. And yet, one of the wonderful things, that I, one of the things I really love about Jesus was his ability to be amazingly present with people. when Everyone is pulling on him and there's a, you know, there's a crowd and he says, somebody touched me. And the disciples are like, Jesus, it's a crowd. Everyone's touching you. And he's like, no, someone's really touched me and virtue's gone out of me. He was, able, he was late to Iris's house, then the child had already died, right? But he was able to be amazingly present. I think that there's a challenge in the Christian faith. In the context of the 21st century of America, in the context of a million things screaming at you and your cell phone and your, your you know, your internet and all of the, and your job and your readings and your assignments and the exams, to say, I will take this moment and I will be in this moment with this person and I will see who this person is, and I will be honest with this person, I will make an authentic human connection. I think that that's really the challenge, and that's an ongoing challenge, because you're constantly being um, pulled and pushed in a million different directions. But the, the willingness to say, I'm going to sacrifice some of my time, I think is a really empower- a really powerful um, way of modeling the life of Jesus. He was constantly giving of himself to other people, and I think that For me, that's something that I constantly am challenging myself with.
1: I think very quickly to hope to convince Christians that to be a Christian and American is not the same thing. <laughs> Say that. That, that sums it up.
0: <laughs>
1: for Christians, not to be, to, to come to the realization that to be a Christian and to be an American is not the same thing.
0: Um,
3: So you gave us the aspiration of striving for hope. So I will uh, tell you something that gives me hope. Uh, And I have the great privilege of working with young folk uh, almost every single day. Uh, They are flawed and beautiful and messed up and hopeful. And here's one of the things that gives me hope by working with young people. This might be the first generation that I have seen. Of not just individuals, but a whole collective of people who give a damn, Mm. who are deeply concerned about human beings on the other side of planet to whom they are not related racially, linguistically, nationally or religiously but by the virtue of being human." Right? That gives me hope because I remember that when Martin King is getting towards the end of his life, right? not the I have a dream Martin, but the Riverside Martin, That's right. the Poor People's Campaign Martin, that he goes to Memphis for the sanitation workers, That's right. and he reverses the Good Samaritan story, which is what I see the young folks today doing. They're no longer asking the question if I go to Jordan to work with Syrian refugees, what will happen to me? Instead, they're asking the question if I do not go to Jordan mm. and work with the Syrian refugees, what will happen? them. Mm. That is the question of people who realize there's no way for us to be authentically and truly human without humanity being something that is shared among us. It's that great African Ubuntu tradition, that Islamic virtue of being an insan, a real human being, and that deeply beautiful Christian virtue that I cannot be who I ought to be until you become everything
0: that you ought to be. Mm, Thank you. We have some questions that have been given to me and because of time, we probably will not get to all of these, but the panelists will be here for a little bit after the official part of the the panel if you want to engage them um, in a, a bit more conversation. One question here, and anyone feel free to um, answer. What does it look like to love terrorists?
1: We haven't talked about how you discover who one is. Uh, I mean, the the old flip is, you know, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Um, I guess it's always try to remember that the deepest enemy most of us have is God because God demands righteousness (laughs) Mm -hmm. and uh, so it would be a little like learning to love God (laughs) To, (laughs) to learn to love a terrorist, and what that does is um, mean that you have to really listen. Um, prayer is a quietness that makes God loose in the world, so I would think that prayer would be one of the ways that one might begin to approach someone that you think is a terrorist.
2: Isn't everyone potentially a terrorist and potentially a friend? I mean, don't all human relationships have both of those possibilities inherent in them?
3: Um... Let me invoke uh, the Riverside Church speech again and one of the most extraordinary things that Martin King said in that talk as a Christian minister, and I'm not a Christian, but I can be moved by Christian teachings, is when he said to his political critics, do they not realize that the father also sent his son to die for the Viet Cong? Now, you don't have to be Christian to understand the greater sense of a divine love that spills over until it washes over all of us, including people that we have at the moment categorized as terrorists. Um, The question of method, again, is key for me. I can Empathize and sympathize with anyone's aspiration for freedom and self-determination. It's how you go about achieving that and whether in your attempt to achieve self-determination, you deem another human being unworthy of the right. right to live. And at that moment, I might love you, but we're going to part ways. And I think the last part of it, for me, is to keep pushing beyond the question of every terrorist is another person's freedom fighter, and to ask the question, who among us upholds the dignity and sanctity of each other's lives? And if we have, and every single one of us sitting in this room has blood on our hands, Because I am and I remain, and I know my friends here are, morally opposed to this war and to every war. And yet my tax dollars, in the thousands, have made it possible for bombs to drop on innocent people around the world. If I can't stop it politically, then this is the very bare minimum that I can do.
2: See, I, I, I think that it, using the term terrorist becomes a way of othering people to the extreme, that they, then we say that they're outside of God's the possibility of God's grace, or the possibility of relationship. And I think that we need to be careful with any term that we can use to put someone
1: outside of
2: the reach of God's grace or the possibility of relationship.
1: Yeah, I mean, what you... You confront the anomaly that people think that state sponsored violence can be called war and not terrorism, but non state sponsored yep. violence exactly. can be called terrorism. So when Israel bombs Lebanon through using fighter pilots, and that's called war but when the PLO blows up a bus, that's called terrorism. Why? I mean, how do you, I mean, it obviously is the person with the biggest gun gets to be at war, and those with the smaller guns get to be terrorists.
0: Let's turn to um, the idea of justice. I'm going to try to combine two questions that have come in. Um, So one of these is, you mentioned justice, but what is justice? And then attached to that is how would each of you describe or how have you seen forms of justice being done in the world?
2: So there was an interesting situation at Georgetown University recently. Um, Georgetown University in the 19th century um, sold a parcel of slaves, some 400 slaves. Uh, in order to allow the institution to survive financially. Um, there have been a lot of universities that have been acknowledging their <clears throat> their historic involvement with slavery, the Ivies, um, University of Virginia acknowledging that it owned slaves corporately, uh, perhaps that it had received as part of Thomas Jefferson's um, uh, uh, estate because he died in debt. Um, so Georgetown had these, these um, slave people, and some of the historians there began to track them, to find out what had become of those people whose lives were sold to save the institution. And one of the things that Georgetown decided was to give the descendants of those 400 slaves access to Georgetown as though they were alumni, as though, I mean, as though they were the children of alumni, that is, that they were legacies. To me, that's the beginning of justice. Now, I think if um, those kids also get tuition-free at Georgetown, in addition to preferential admission, that's justice, right? That the is... The Jesuits
1: did this. Makes them, it makes you almost believe in God. Almost.
2: Right. <laughs> and I think it is a wonderful story but because it, 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 is, it is, Georgetown was using its institutional power to tell the story of these, these black people whose lives were lost. And it's reaching out to the African-American community and specifically saying, this is your story and reaching out to the descendants of people who, were the, who received the injustice. So then to me, justice is about making right things that are not right, making fair things that are not fair. Um, And I think that uh, the the Georgetown circumstance, if they uh, get some some tuition money to go with it, will begin to look like reparations in a very targeted and specific way that I think establishes justice for a specific group of former slaves and their descendants.
0: Anybody else
1: wanna? The great figure that ought to be mentioned in terms of that question is Reinhold Niebuhr. And Reinhold Niebuhr was a great Christian theologian, ethicist, who argued that if you if you want relative peace, you better be ready to kill someone because you do not live in a world in which you get to choose between violence and nonviolence. You live in a world of deep conflict in which if you want relative peace, he said above the State Department door should be written, when in doubt, kill as few as possible. Mm -hmm. That's, That's called realism. And uh, it is a very powerful position that presupposes that the kind of justice achievable in this world is justice that rides on the back of coercion. Um, There's much to be said descriptively for that position you just can't agree with it if you're a follower of
2: Jesus.
0: (laughs) Omen, do you want to...
3: This is not a theological statement, it's just something that um, comes to me as a parent. I think before I'm a scholar, before I'm an activist, before I work 18 hours a day for this tyrannical institution that I love, Um, I am a father. That is what shapes me and who I am as a human being and as a parent who loves my babies, I don't know how anybody can sanction violence. Uh, I've traveled to around 40 countries in this world and everywhere that I've sat down and eaten and prayed with, and spoken with other babas and mamas, other papas and annas. Every parent that I know wants the same thing that I do for my babies. They want food in their belly, they want a roof over their head, they want dignity in their bones, and they want them to marry someone exactly like them. (laughs) That's it. That's the only true universal that I know. And for me, part of this path of love and nonviolence is to simply recognize that other people love their babies every bit as much as we love our own. And we wouldn't want to do to other people babies what we wouldn't want them to do to ours. Mm
2: -hmm. Sounds remarkably Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. doing unto others. Mm -hmm.
0: Let me give you two questions as sort of a, they're not really connected, so you can dive in on whichever one you want as a way to close our time um, today. So the first one is, what do you do when what you've done wrong can't be made right? Who is the you? If plural and if we are talking about community, how do we talk about you? and and how is that constituted? And the other question is, um, is violence necessary to sustain westernism slash whiteness? If so, can westernism slash whiteness be redeemed?
2: I don't think that whiteness can be redeemed. I think whiteness on some level has to be renounced. Um, My reason for saying that is that whiteness as it's constructed is not uh, biologically feasible, right? There's no genetic marker for race um, that one group has that another group doesn't have. And people of African descent are the most genetically diverse people on the planet. So even if there were markers for race, there wouldn't be a marker for blackness. Um, Race is a thing that we've constructed uh, that we said was biological, turns out not to be. Um, but that has political, economic, educational um, uh, uh, consequences, has consequences for longevity and marriage and offspring. Um, I I, I don't think that can be redeemed. I think that has to be renounced. Um, I think that privilege, the privilege that obtains, that idea that um, you can look at someone and know by the color of their skin whether they're good or bad, or smart, or stupid, or righteous, or guilty, um, is ridiculous, and it's it's an idea so outmoded and so ridiculous that we it can't be redeemed. It can only be uh, given up on. Um,
0: All right. Stan or Omid on any of these questions. Um,
3: recently, when the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture opened up, um, there's some in inspiring and soaring exhibit, and then there are some that do make you realize um, that there are some wrongs that you cannot right, and simply saying, I'm sorry, while necessary, is not sufficient. And the one I think did it for me was a recognition that Thomas Jefferson, that Thomas Jefferson, And Mercy. Had sold some of his own offspring into slavery because they were descended from his African-American mistresses. How do we sit with the fact that not only are each one of us a jumbled mess of contradiction, of goodness and beauty and light and darkness? I mean this is the Harry Potter syndrome, right? There's a little bit of the evil inside each one of us. What do we do about the fact that the very people who are the authors of some of our most enlightened founding documents are themselves so fundamentally and irredeemably corrupt? And the one thing that I have learned in trying to have open, honest dialogue and truth-telling to people is that we don't as of yet have the vocabulary in public we keep talking about white privilege and a good chunk of our white brothers and sisters hear white privilege as white people. They think that we're critiquing white people where what we're actually critiquing is that unearned and unjust and unsustainable system of privilege. We keep critiquing sexism and people think you're attacking men. We keep critiquing classism and people think you hate rich people. Right? Somehow, some way, I think we still are in need of finding out ways of speaking with one another and it could be, might be, that the problem is not that some of us are not clear enough but that quite a few of us are not listening
2: so this was helpful for me when i was writing my dissertation how do you write a book you write it a paragraph or a page or a sentence at a time how do you eat an elephant a bite at a time so how do you what do you do if there's a problem that's unsolvable you pick a place you can't fix the whole thing you pick a place and you make your stand so if you are a part of duke Whatever that broader community is, find a problem and get involved, right? Um, Find injustice and do what you can to fix it, or in your local church, or in your uh, local mosque, or synagogue, or in your community, in your neighborhood. Reach out to your neighbors. That is to say, find some small way to get started. Uh, I had a pastor once who said, you know, if God calls you to go to New York, buy a plane ticket. If you can't afford a plane ticket, buy a, a bus ticket. If you can't afford a bus ticket, point yourself in the direction of New York and start walking. And if you can't walk, point yourself in the direction of New York and fall. Do something. Get involved in some small way, right, as opposed to saying, well, this is too big. I can't fix it.
0: Stanley, you have the last word.
1: Well, I believe in the slow, hard work of nonviolence, which means you need to learn to be patient in a world of extraordinary impatience. And I'd like to think, that that's a way of naming teaching over the last 40 years because teaching is sure as hell slow hard <laughs> 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 and you rarely see, y- you do see, yes, you, you do, do see, see um, difference but
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think how to resist the impatience of the world is such a hard task, but you've got to start somewhere.
0: Can we thank all of our panelists for their time and
1: insight?
0: They will stick around for just a few minutes. Um, And they have other things to get to in their day. And so thank you for being here at this important bridge panel. Um, Go in peace. Go in peace.